0: Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to The Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.
1: On this episode of the original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be reviewing male pelvic pain and pelvic health. What is pelvic pain? Well, you may know somebody, or you yourself may have incidents where you have some issues with pain in the perineum, the area between the scrotum and the anus. You might be suffering from some discomfort within the penile area. You might have chronic testicular pain. All this falls into a problem of chronic pelvic pain. To help us through understanding how to treat this and diagnose it, I have two guests. Ken Berger, JDMD is with us, Dr. Brigger trained at Loma Linda. He is now at Tri-State Health in Clarkson, Washington. He is the current president of the Washington State Urology Society, which brings you this podcast. He is the urology lead for the Washington State University Medical School and chair of the American Urological Association Leadership and Business Education Committee. Joining Dr. Berger is Molly Riley, PT, DPT. Molly is a pelvic health physical therapist. She works at the University of Washington Medical Center, Northwest Outpatient. The Northwest Outpatient area of the UW Medical Center focuses on pelvic health PT. And I'm going to have Molly start off with a little bit of background about what a physical therapist does and how we can particularly help in some conditions of the pelvic floor. Molly, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. So as a pelvic health physical therapist, really what it means is I went to PT school, like all PTs did, and then I did extra training on top of that to learn the specialty of pelvic health physical therapy. And as a pelvic health physical therapist, I treat people of all genders. I treat anything from pelvic pain to urinary incontinence to pre and post different types of urological, gynecological surgeries, pregnancy, postpartum, Um, really the list goes on and on, including constipation. But I know today we're going to be focusing on male pelvic health, which is, and pelvic pain specifically, which is a big subset of my population.
1: So how do patients tend to come to you? Do they find you through direct referral or do they have to come through a, a referral from a physician or a practitioner?
2: At the University of Washington, they do have to come through a referral. So it's usually through a urology. Sometimes I'm getting patients through their primary care provider. But if it's a man with pelvic pain, it's almost always from urology or if they have different lower urinary tract symptoms as well.
1: So, why don't you just review a little bit about some of the pelvic health or pelvic floor conditions that contribute to? pelvic pain, some of the issues that you face in looking at patients, and how you go about sorting out what needs to be done. And then we'll go to Dr. Berger about what a physician would be looking at to make certain that it's safe to send to physical therapy and that we're not missing an underlying condition. So Molly, go ahead first.
2: So in pelvic health PT, once a patient is coming to me, I'm really going to be looking for how their pelvic floor is functioning. And so usually they're going to be complaining of things like testicular pain they may have a deep ache deep inside their pelvis they might have some difficulty urinating on command there might be a lot of starting and stopping they might not be able to fully empty Or they might have urinary incontinence and so we really want to look at what are their muscles doing and so we can do that with a pretty quick external pelvic floor muscle screen so we're going to be looking at the perineum looking at what it's like at rest having the patient contract and relax and breathe and try to get some idea of how it's functioning so we can then transition to teach them how to make it function better So a lot of these patients are, we're finding they're very high stress, really anxious, and they've been holding their pelvic floors really tight for a very long time. And that's a big cause of pain. And it's also causing them to have a hard time urinating because if it's, those muscles are really tight and clamping around the outlet, you can't let your bladder empty. So that's a large portion. We do have some patients who are truly have weak pelvic floors, but More often than not, what I'm seeing for my male patients is overactive or poorly coordinated pelvic floors.
1: So they're really not relaxing the pelvic floor and it's held in an abnormal state of tension. I use uh, the analogy for patients of uh, TMJ. Uh, A lot of patients jaw clench and they recognize that if they sleep clenched, they are sore. Yes.
2: Yes. So there's actually research to show that there's a Big correlation to patients who have TMJ issues, they often have pelvic floor problems as well. And neck pain and TMJ, that's one way sometimes I cue my patients to relax their pelvic floor is I actually talk to them about relaxing their jaw and their necks. And sometimes we'll get a better pelvic floor relaxation by doing that. Looking at people's feet too is another way. Sometimes the part of our brain that controls and senses our feet is actually right next to the genital region of our brain. And so sometimes there's some cross puts. So you'll see patients try to activate their pelvic floor and they're actually cramping up their feet. And so sometimes, especially with patients who are having a really hard time actually relaxing, I'll skip to other parts of their bodies to see if we can't get it to relax incidentally as they focus on other areas.
1: So I'm going to uh, go to Dr. Berger to look at how a urologist might look at some of the pelvic pain patients. And there's more than just pelvic pain that you deal with. But pelvic pain is particularly problematic because patients have been treated for a number of other conditions. Dr. Berger, let's start with a patient who has chronic testicular pain. You know, we want to make certain that if we're sending to PT that we're not missing something else. So why don't you just kind of go through what would happen if a patient came in and said they have had months and months and months of testicular pain.
3: Well, the first thing I want to do is make sure that the pain isn't from infection or some other etiology that we as urologists can treat. So the first thing I would do is a physical examination. I would also check a urine to make sure they don't have a urinary tract infection. I would check to make sure that they're emptying their bladder okay. Depending on the patient's age, we may check a PSA. We may feel their prostate. After the physical exam, if it's uh, what I want to do is elicit to see if there's any tenderness that they that I can reproduce when I examine them. Sometimes I'll find that, sometimes I won't. Sometimes feeling the testicles won't be painful to them, but they still sense that pain. Um, I talk to them about where the pain is referred, whether it goes to other parts of the body. I may get a scrotal ultrasound afterwards to make sure that I'm not missing a small tumor or lesion within the testicles. And the last thing I might get is an MRI of the Pelvis to make sure, or the lower back to make sure that there isn't any obvious nerve impingement. If I do all of that and I don't find anything, that becomes a much more difficult problem for me as a urologist to treat. And that's where I would start thinking about sending to physical therapy.
1: So we examine the patient. We get a good history. We find that the testicles are very normal on examination. We see no evidence of a chronic infection, of an anatomic problem. Prostate's normal. As far as we can tell, there are no skin lesions. There's no herpetic outbreak. I always found one thing. When a patient told me they had unilateral pain, then I was, okay, You know, we don't find a reason for this. When they tell me they have bilateral testes pain, that was almost a tip-off. I, I certainly go through everything you talked about, but when both testes hurt, I'm already thinking this is referred from somewhere else. This is back pain traveling down or some other, and we make sure there's no hernia on the unilateral pain or bilateral hernias causing stimulation. So now we've got the patient who we feel comfortable, does not have some urological condition responsible, and we we send them over to PT. They walk into the physical therapy suite. What happens?
2: So when a patient first walks in to see me, I spend a lot of time talking to them. I really want to hear what their story is because a lot of times they're going to tell me what their problem is as I'm asking them all sorts of questions, but some of my leading questions, I'm gonna ask them about intercourse. I'm gonna ask them if they're able to have intercourse, if they're able to ejaculate and if there's pain with that. I'm gonna ask them about their urinary habits. Can they pee? Are they peeing standing up? Do they have to sit down to pee? And then I'm gonna spend a significant time talking about bowel movements as well, because a lot of patients are constipated. They don't maybe even realize it, but they're straining and pushing really hard and they're causing a lot of tension onto that pelvic floor. So while I do know that they are coming to me with testicular pain, I'm gonna ask about a lot of other systems first to try to see what's going on, ask them if they have a history of back problems, hip injuries and things like that, then we're going to do some type of exam. So oftentimes I start out with just an external exam and we do that with the patient laying on their back. And I'm going to look directly at the perineum because that's kind of our window into the pelvic floor for our male patients. And I'm going to have them Contract those muscles on command, try to shorten their penis, shorten their testicles. That tends to be a good cue for our male patients. And I'm going to ask them to try to relax them, try to lengthen, let it drop. I'm going to have them do some deep breaths and see if we get any movement of their pelvic floor with that and ask them about how their pain is, if any of those things change their pain. And then I'm also going to, especially for these patients with unilateral testicular pain, I'm going to look at their psoas, so their deep hip flexor, and I'm going to palpate it directly. And so that's between their belly button and their hip bone. And I just kind of dive deep in there with my hand. And oftentimes I can reproduce their testicular pain just by pressing there. And they think it's really weird because they've been to the urologist and the urologist palpated their testicles. There was no pain. It's kind of confusing. And I'm touching, you know, far away and it's replicating it and that's because of the genito-femoral nerve that's going through that pathway and i'm putting pressure on it and so then we found our pain trigger
1: so that's in essence somebody who's laying supine and you're pushing on their belly sort of the
2: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And it's between the umbilicus and the ASIS, kind of halfway in between. And you can place your fingers there. You kind of have to be gentle at first because if you just jam in there, they're going to tense up against you. But you slowly work your way into that area. And then sometimes I'll resist hip flexion and that'll make the psoas activate and kind of pop into my fingers a little bit better. It might exacerbate their pain too. But yeah, that's how I would look for it. Some of the more specific things I'm going to ask the patient about is whether their pain started with or coincided with constipation, any lower urinary tract symptoms, illness like cough, vomiting, diarrhea, if they've had abdominal surgery recently, hernia or hernia repairs, any spine or hip injuries, and emotional stress or life changes is a big one as well. Then some other cues I'm going to look for to see if it's pelvic floor related Their pain might be referring into the abdomen or inner thigh. It could be better or worse after intercourse. It could be better after urinating or defecating, and it might be better in the morning, worse as the day progresses, or the pain could even be positional.
1: I don't know if this is uh, fair or true, but I used to tell patients when I was referring them to PT that one experiment they could do is if they were hurting more, particularly at the end of the day, to draw up a hot bathtub, Mm -hmm. get in the tub, and after they were relaxed in the hot water, if the pain went away, that was sort of a tip-off and to report that to the physical therapist.
2: Yes, absolutely. Anything that's going to help them relax is, if that helps their pain, it's probably their pelvic floor and a hot bath is one way. Um, the one thing I'd say is some patients say exercise helps them relax. And while I love for my patients to exercise, I wouldn't say that exercises should relieve your pelvic pain because it's increasing activity throughout your whole body. And so for some patients, it's going to increase their pain. So I, I guess I would just want to clarify with the patient, have them do something they find relaxing, but is not active.
1: I'm going to ask you in a bit sort of the type of therapies that you offer, but I'm going to go back to Dr. Berger to maybe bring up a specific case in a patient that he has seen so i have one
3: specific patient in mind but i can think of multiple other patients that are very similar so the one i'm thinking of is a patient in their late 50s who's actually a farmer who drives a wheat combine for eight to ten hours a day every day during the summer who has urgency frequency suprapubic pain and discomfort sometimes going into the perineum no testicular pain, but just that urgency and frequency and the suprapubic pain all the time. And I've done a complete exam, cultures, we've treated him presumptively for a prostatitis, nothing has helped. And this makes me think that this may be a pelvic floor problem. And I think I see similar things in patients who are truck drivers as well. I'd like to know what you think, what you have to say about that type of patient.
2: I've treated many truck drivers, actually. I, Seattle, not as many farmers, but. I absolutely think it would be a pelvic floor problem in that case so when the pelvic floor is really tight it starts to pull on the bladder you think about all the fascia that's interconnecting all of these structures all of our organs and you know it's kind of like the onion peeling concept we we sometimes talk about Um, if their pelvic floor is really tight it's gonna pull on the bladder and it can make them feel like they have to pee and over time it's also gonna cause pain then, with that patient, as far as the continued urgency and frequency, there's a concept of uh, that their bladder has now trained them to think that it has a small capacity. So, the bladder thinks that it can only hold a couple ounces, for example, and then it sends this really intense urgency signal to the brain, but in actuality, it has a lot more room. And so, in pelvic PT, we're going to talk. The patient through that and we're going to do a bladder retraining we're going to teach them different urge suppression techniques and help them slowly over time prolong how long they can go between urinations but teaching them to relax their pelvic floor is going to be very important first line of defense if that patient's coming to me
3: how long does it take to do that retraining what would the course of treatment look like
2: it's really variable from person to person part of it is how well connected they are with their own body so we all know some patients who are you tell them to do something they seem to be able to do it really quickly others you know you ask them to scratch their nose and they're scratching their ear right they don't know one part from another so it can really vary i'd say anywhere from two visits to 16 visits um commonly, I'll see a patient and then have them follow up with me a week later. Then we start to spread our visits out to about every two weeks for a couple sessions. And then if they start having uh, good improvement, we've set them up with a lot of things they can do it for themselves at home. I'm going to start spreading out, maybe see them a month later, uh, and then set them free and tell them to come back to me if they have problems. But it does take time. And so... And if they aren't compliant with the things that I want them to do at home, they're not going to get better. We can do everything possible in a session, but it really does take the patient following through.
1: Yeah, I used to remind patients that they'd been voiding irregularly for years, and it takes a while for them to learn how to void normally again.
2: Absolutely, and especially if there's anxiety and stress around it. If that aspect's not treated, it's it's not going to get a lot better. I have one patient specifically right now who's late teens early 20s and and during covid developed quite the fear of all sorts of things but returning to school and bathroom use has been a big problem and right now we're kind of at a state where i don't think pelvic pt i've kind of reached the capacity of what i can do and i think it's now more of a psych situation and luckily he's seeing a therapist but it's going to take time
1: so i'm going to go back to dr berger with the uh... More comments and perhaps another case, a different kind of case.
3: Well, the other case I was going to talk about was testicular pain because that's something that we all see so often, but I think we covered that already. From what we spoke about earlier, there's definitely a role for PT in the period around surgery as well.
1: So um, referring to surgery as in treatment for prostate cancer, where the entire prostate is removed, called a radical prostatectomy, more commonly done in this day and age with a robot. But one of the potential side effects is what we call stress urinary incontinence or leakage of urine with a cough, a sneeze. Typically, it will improve over time, but it's certainly enhanced as far as improvement with physical therapy. So uh, tell us your preference, Molly, about a patient who's going to undergo a radical. Would you like to see them before, after, What sort of things do you offer them?
2: Absolutely would love to see them beforehand. So at the University of Washington, we have pelvic health PT protocol for patients who are coming to us before a prostatectomy. Not all of our urologists send us patients, but we have a handful who are very, very consistent about it, or the patients have heard that it might be helpful, so they'll ask for that referral. And in that pre-surgical appointment, we're going to make sure that they know how to use their pelvic floor muscles um because post-operatively it's going to be harder and not easier to do that so if we can get them trained up on it ahead of time they're going to be more successful afterwards when the urologist says okay now start doing your strengthening if they are not doing a proper contraction, telling a patient to do it is not going to be very helpful. And so we're screening to make sure that they actually know what that means and can they do it. And then we're also going to be providing them with a lot more specific education on urinary incontinence, how to prevent it, different dietary triggers, things that might make it worse. They might have developed that Kind of learned bladder of it thinking it doesn't have much capacity. So we're going to talk about bladder retraining and lengthening times between urinations. We're going to talk about constipation because they're going to have been under anesthesia of some kind. They're going to potentially have been taking pain meds and we really don't want them to get constipated. That's, you know, if they're straining that can damage the surgical sites and it can lead to more problems. So there's quite a few different things that we're going to be looking at talking to them about ahead of time and we're going to load them up with all that info, give them handouts. And so that then post-op they can start treating themselves and not actually even need us. But if it is persistent, their symptoms, you know, say they're still having a lot of urinary leakage after four to six weeks, they really haven't seen any improvement at all. I'd say send them to pelvic PT and we can do a further assessment and try to tailor the exercises and things that they're doing to them and where they're at now, which might be very different than the, where they were preoperatively.
1: I think it's difficult for patients. Many compare notes with other patients and some people are dry the day the catheter came out and other people go, why am I still leaking? And it's three months. And you know there are, are patients who take time to respond, but they do. And I always try to keep patients from getting discouraged about the fact that, gee, why is it taking me so long?
3: Recently, I've seen several young adults with nocturnal anuresis or bedwetting. Do you think physical therapy plays a role in treating that?
2: The younger patients, it's hard to say. Less likely, I'm less likely to jump on it to say it's a pelvic PT problem. With our older patients, though, I'm more likely to think so. But that middle of the night, not waking up and having accidents... I tend to have questions that I might want to send them to neurology I get a little concerned about things like MS. But there are a few things that we can do. We talk about what they're eating and drinking. You know, I've had patients be like, well, I drink Diet Coke until I go to sleep. I'm like, all right, well, let's talk about not doing that. There might be other mobility issues that's making it really hard for them to get up and out of bed. And then sleep apnea. That's a big one. So if they have significant sleep apnea, that's been shown to have cause having accidents at night, so but those are all out of my scope as a pelvic PT. So I'm going to give them education and screen these different things, but I'm likely going to ask for physicians to assist with that patient.
1: Well, let's go back to the patient with another form of pelvic pain. Something that urologists get a lot of business from primary care physicians is what's called prostatitis. Dr. Berger had briefly referred to that. But these patients have pain, perineal pain. They may have voiding dysfunction. They may have testicular pain. They may have all of that. And they've been told that they have prostatitis and treated with various courses of antibiotics Maybe get a little better, but then they say then it came back. And then, other course, antibiotics maybe got a little better, but they came back. But it just doesn't go away. And whenever we go back and look at the records, we find no evidence of actual infection. They're told, well, this is sterile prostatitis. Years ago, this was looked at, and prostatitis was renamed chronic prostatic pelvic pain syndrome, because we wanted to take the emphasis away from infection and focus more on what are the symptoms of the pain. So Dr. Berger, you have a patient that you could think of?
3: Well, I have, I have several patients like that, where they come in, they have symptoms of pain between the scrotum and the rectum. Sometimes it's penile pain or pain at the tip of the penis. Um, the urine will often be completely normal. Sometimes I'll have them send a semen sample for a culture. Sometimes that grows something, sometimes it doesn't. I'll often try them on a course of an antibiotics to see if it helps. But if it doesn't help, then I start thinking about other causes. And that's when I might think of sending them to physical therapy.
1: So Molly, you see that patient from us. It's something that you probably see fairly commonly. Again, go through what you would do with that patient who's very frustrated, can't get rid of their prostate infection. We reeducate that this is not a prostate infection. This is your pelvic floor.
2: I'd like to see them more often. I think these patients are kind of sometimes not making their way to pelvic PT and and the more physicians that can refer them to us, the better, because I, especially with, you know, antibiotic resistant things out there, we don't want to just keep using them over and over again. But when this patient comes to see me, really all pelvic pain patients, whether it's testicular, perineal, penile, we're going to start off. In the same ways. And I'm going to be asking them about their bowels. I'm going to be asking them about intercourse and their urinary habits. And they might have some nuanced differences and it might send me in different directions, but I'm going to look at their pelvic floor and I'm going to assess at the perineum is it hard just at rest? Is it really firm? Are their testicles, do they appear retracted? Those are all signs they're not able to relax their pelvic floor. And then I'm going to very quickly start to teach them how to do that and a big way is with breath and when we breathe in the diaphragm drops down the pelvic floor should mirror that and drop down as well and relax and so That's day one, what their homework is, is some really focused, mindful, deep breathing that's going to help let that pelvic floor relax. Exactly how I'm going to get them to get the best relaxation in session really depends on the person. So I always say, as a provider, I need to have a lot of different tools in my toolbox because everyone's really different. So one cue might work awesome for one person and mean nothing to another person. I tend not to use biofeedback as much as a lot of other pelvic PTs might or because the patient doesn't have a biofeedback unit at home. So as soon as I can get a patient to know how to relax or in other cases contract, we're good. I want to now start having them implement it and teach them how to do it in different positions, but biofeedback can be really helpful and um, and that's where we put little electrodes around the perineum. It goes into a box, can go into a computer, and it shows the patient what their muscles are doing through electrical activity. So it can show that they're still contracting, the graph is going to be way up high, and then they start to relax, it drops, and they can get a visual of that. But I also like to use mirrors. I'll have the patient look at their perineum with a mirror or look at their testicles and be able to see it because everyone has a mirror at home. Or they can use their fingers and feel the perineum and get that self-feedback that way. Or I've also had them sit on a towel roll So sort of straddling it because that puts some pressure on the perineum. And then when they breathe in and relax, if they're properly relaxing, they should feel a little more pressure into that towel roll. That's a nice one, especially for our patients who are a little more nervous and apprehensive for any kind of exams. Do
3: you think there's a relationship between core strength and pelvic pain?
2: Definitely. So it can kind of go one of two ways, probably a bunch of other ways too. But my main ones, if you don't have enough core strength, sometimes your body will compensate and make your pelvic floor overactive and try to use your pelvic floor as your main source of stability. And so that can cause pelvic pain. In opposition to that, if your core is always tight, your pelvic floor is probably also always tight. So I have a lot of, we call them abdominal grippers, patients who are constantly holding their stomachs in, whether it's For cosmetic reasons, you know, they want to look thinner and they're trying to fit into something or they really just thought, well, I need to keep my core on all the time because that's what they say. And it needs to be strong. But if you're just sitting there, your core should not be super tight. You know, if you're going to go lift a heavy box, go for it, activate that core. But we need nuance with that. So absolutely. But again, it's, it's not just as simple as I have pelvic pain. It's tight. I should now strengthen my core. It could go either way.
1: I'm just going to uh, deviate a little bit. To I remember when I was a medical student and I had a patient who'd had a stroke, and the physical therapist came in and said, "If only we could have taught that patient how to relax during a bowel movement, <laughs> and actually instead of straining and having the stroke." So there are some patients who have constipation is an issue and they're really strain during bowel movements, and this may be a benefit to them if they're listening into appropriate way to have a bowel movement. You want to just address that?
2: Absolutely. I think everyone who comes into my office gets taught how to poop properly because really we're not doing it properly, especially in this country with these really high toilet seats. Ideally to poop, you should be sitting and your knees should be slightly higher than your hips. So there's a great product called the squatty potty, which is a little stool that fits under the toilet that you can put your feet on. It's about six inches high. You don't have to buy the squatty potty. Anything that you can put your feet on that's about six to 12 inches high just to rest your feet there. Your knees are going to come up higher. That's going to put the puborectalis, a specific hip muscle on slack. It's going to make the passage of that stool easier. And then you're going to take I always have patients just take some big, nice, relaxing breaths, breathing in, letting your stomach expand, pelvic floor drop and open, and then exhale, just letting it all come out, doing that a handful of times. And then when you're actually ready to have the bowel movement, some pushing is okay, but we're not straining. And so the difference between straining and gentle pushing is that you're breathing through it. So, I have patients take a big deep breath in, make their stomach as big as they can, trying to then keep the pelvic floor relaxed and the belly big and hard and push out at that moment. But keeping the pelvic floor relaxed and the belly distended, the belly distended is gonna help prevent the pelvic floor from contracting. And there's other nuanced things you can do if you make a low tone, like ooh. That actually helps relax the pelvic floor so we're looking at the connection between the epiglottis and the pelvic floor so sometimes I'll have patients do that they actually teach that in birthing classes um, as a way to push out a baby so um, it can be utilized for bowel movements too Um, so those are generally the type of things we'll we'll focus on um, and really just making sure they're relaxed
1: well, excellent. As we wrap up, I uh, always like to see if there's any other thoughts that you have that you want to pass on.
2: Well, we need more pelvic PTs, especially pelvic PTs who treat people of all genders and treat colorectal issues as well. I know we're talking about pelvic pain, but it, it crosses over, right? So it's not just you know, a person who has testicles; they also have an anus. They can have problems all over. So, we, if there's more PTs out there who want to become pelvic PTs, please do.
1: And if uh, somebody is in an area where there isn't a pelvic specialist, there usually is still a physical therapist who at least is a resource to get to.
2: Yes. And one resource for people, you can go to pelvicrehab.com and you can put in your city or zip code and it, can, it will populate lists of pelvic PTs near you. So that's one way to find somebody near you.
1: Do you have any other resources that you send patients to that they can find online about techniques for physical therapy or pelvic floor therapy
2: not at the moment the uw is working on making some links we have a basic link that just says what you might expect when you come to pelvic pt but we are looking to expand our repertoire of those of those videos sometimes i'll you know just spend a little time on youtube and look for random ones but it's uh, on my to-do list to create a better list of resources for patients
1: and dr Berger, any thoughts
3: so as a urologist i think we need to take more advantage of pt resources this is something that we need to keep on the top of our minds and when we're treating patients with pelvic pain and testicular pain and either they're not getting better and the tests haven't shown anything else We need to think about referring to physical therapy. I think it would benefit
0: our patients a lot. Thank you.
1: Well, I thank Dr. Ken Berger and Molly Riley. appreciate it. Thank you.
0: This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions as well as editing assistance are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original guide to men's health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.